You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Today, we have a hunter profile podcast. It's a really, really good one. Uh, we're going to be talking with John Hudspeth from Oklahoma, and he's going to talk about how he grew up hunting in North Texas and hunting some Southern Oklahoma ground as well. He's going to talk about the terrain. He's going to talk about what he's done to that terrain to improve the habitat like food plots and some other habitat work. He's going to talk about, you know, growing up as a kid, how he started to hunt, why he started to hunt, how he kind of, like most of us, cannonballed into it. Uh, He's going to talk a little bit about how Oklahoma the state is becoming kind of that that big buck sleeper state with multiple 200 inch deer taken in 2017 so we're going to cover a little bit about everything on this podcast Uh, another great hunter profile podcast and uh, i know from the statistics that this is something that you guys like to listen to so i might as well just keep pushing them out so before we get into this hunter profile podcast i want to talk a little bit about ozonics now i say this a lot but if you are the if you're the guy who has a full-time job maybe even a family uh, and hunting is the, the number of days you can hunt is limited because of other responsibilities but you are serious about getting opportunities i think an ozonics is something that you guys really need to look into because It's one of those products that allows you more opportunities while in the tree stand because of the the technology, because of the ozone, you know, distracting everything downwind, right? So it's breaking up your scent profile. It's not, you're, you're not sticking out like a sore thumb as far as your scent's concerned. And it allows you to get away with a little bit more than what you are used to. It allows you to hunt a little bit more aggressive and it's it's one of those things that you just have to try so if you if you don't feel like you want to buy one first thing you need to do is go borrow one from a friend 
and use it. And that's how a lot of guys get hooked, right? They'll borrow one from somebody they know, they'll use it, they'll have that that quote unquote aha moment that Ozonics likes to talk about, and then they'll go buy one on, on their own. Or if you're the kind of guy, I guess, that's just like, screw it, I'm gonna go invest the money uh, because you've heard a lot of positive things about it, you know, do that as well. If you want to find out more information about Ozonics, you need to visit ozonicshunting.com and take a look at all of the products that they have to offer. Do some research. All the information you need to know about Ozone, how to use it, how to store it, all their other products is on ozonicshunting.com. Take a look today, and when you do decide to purchase one of those uh, units or any products, enter the discount code. One second here. It slipped. Nine fingers. It's the number nine followed by the word fingers, and you will get $75 off all orders over $399. So go ahead and uh, do that. And other than that, guys, we are uh, we're, we're done talking here. Let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast with John Hudspeth. All right, everyone, on the phone with me right now, Mr. John Hudspeth. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing great. How are you? I can't complain, man. What's uh, going on down in Texas? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, had to uh, get some cows out of our bull pasture this morning, but it's a nice, beautiful day, so no complaints. Nice, nice. So uh, let, you know, let's transition right into that. What, uh, where do you live in Texas, and what do you do for a living? Uh, so I grew up just north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, so I'm about an hour from Dallas-Fort Worth and about an hour from the, the Red River, which is the Texas-Oklahoma border. Um, and so I, I was born and raised there. Uh, the last uh, little over a year, uh, I've actually uh, been living just across the border in Oklahoma. Uh, okay. my, my brother got out of the Army uh, last November and decided he wanted to start cattle ranching, which we'd kind of done growing up. And so I've been up here helping him for about the last year and a half or so. So. So you're officially a cattle rancher now. I am. I am. So it's uh, it's uh, it's hard work, but it's it's rewarding and it uh, it feeds into my hunting habit really well. So. That's good. That's good. So I take it, you know, obviously cattle need land to right. to I guess feed and you raise cattle, and right. also on that land, uh, white-tailed deer live. So That's- you're kind of out and about in it all the time. That's right. Yeah, we actually we actually have two properties. Um, both of both of them are just over a thousand acres. Um, the property where me and my dad kind of stay and operate is a lot more wooded. Uh, we actually bought it more as a recreational type place. Um, and then when my brother moved back and wanted to start ranching, uh, we bought another place, and it's it's more strictly cows. Um, so it's it's pretty wide open, pretty hilly. Um, but, uh, oddly enough, I've recently found out that, uh, he's actually has larger deer, um, over there. The places are about 45 minutes apart. Um, so it's been, it's been an interesting transition, but, uh, I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah. And being here all the time definitely has its advantages. Um, you know, it's kind of, kind of scouting all the time basically. So it's, it's been really, uh, enjoyable. Right. So you just recently, I mean, how many years now have you been hunting in Oklahoma as opposed to Texas? 
Um, so I've actually been hunting in Oklahoma for about eight years now. Um, my grandpa had a place, uh, before we had this place. Uh, so I would, it was only about an hour and a half away from home. Uh, so basically I would, uh, I'd finish my football game on Friday night and I'd drive up there and I'd sleep in my truck and I'd hunt Saturday and Sunday morning and then drive back for school again on Monday. (laughs) Um, and so that's kind of, that's when I really got serious about hunting. Um, and then we bought this place about four years ago. Uh, so that was the first time I really had a place of my own, uh, that, you know, I was in control of to where I could start doing some management and stuff like that. Um, and then we just bought my brother's place last November or last October, I'm sorry. Um, and so I actually killed, a uh, the biggest buck of my life over there, uh, in 2016, um, kind of on a fluke. Uh, and then this last year, uh, it, it kind of kicked my butt really. It's uh, it's just a lot different from what I've been hunting, more open Hills, um, the guy that we bought it from, he was strictly a cattle rancher. He had no interest in hunting. So he actually clear cut the entire property. And so, you know, there's, there's really no trees. You can put a tree stand in. Um, it's a lot of it or not a lot of it, but part of it is grown back up in cedars. Um, so it, it provides cover, but again, you can't get a tree stand. So it's a lot of ground hunting. Um, and so the deer over there kind of made a fool out of me this year. Um, but I still had a pretty good season here, uh, on our property. So cool. Um, cool. So that's kind of what I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit about everything. I guess we'll call this a BS session today, <laughs> but kind of mixed with a hunter profile, whatever. But okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about everything that we just mentioned and then some, okay. and I think the best place to start is you know, this email that you sent me, right? Mm -hmm. And in this email, you you go on to say, you know, I grew up hunting in North Texas, which is very different from South Texas, uh, where all the the hunting television shows take place. Mm -hmm. So what I want to know is what is the difference between North Texas and South Texas as far as whitetails are concerned? Okay. Um, I guess, you know, if I had to use one word, it would just be rain rainfall uh you know south texas you know they may get 10 to 12 inches of rain a year and up here where i am we get you know 30 to 40 inches of rain um so we we are not your stereotypical texas up here it's it's green we have you know trees we have big hardwood trees um there's farming uh whereas you know south texas and what you see on tv it's you know sand and brush and mesquites and uh that type of thing uh so we I guess we have more of a stereotypical hunting type scenario as opposed to South Texas. Gotcha. Um, and then also, you know, we it's still legal to use corn feeders and bait and stuff up here, but just because of the, uh, you know, the rainfall, there's more food, it's more plentiful. So, you know, in South Texas, you throw a bag of corn on the ground, it's going to be gone, you know, a couple hours later, just because they're so much more reliant on that as a food source. Um, whereas up here, you know, we have, clover and agriculture and browse and so it's just it's it's a lot more of your typical hunting scenario as opposed to south texas gotcha so i would i'm i'm just assuming because i have no idea but the more rainfall that you guys get probably translates into better a better deer herd not only from just a health standpoint but you know for just be the habitat being able to support 
not only uh, a healthier herd, but like potentially growing into bigger bucks. Is that accurate? It is. It's very um, up here. We don't see it quite as much. Um, but, uh, down in South, South Texas, I mean, it is almost directly related to rain. Uh, I mean, if they have a drought year, like it's, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to have smaller bucks that year, antler wise. Uh, not always. And, you know, a lot of it, if they're supplemental feeding and providing water, have good water sources and, you know, that helps a lot. Um, but as a whole, you can, you can see some pretty big swings just, just related to rainfall. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you're not on the farm or well, the areas that you grew up hunting, uh, rain wasn't, you know, drought or rain wasn't necessarily a big concern. Not too big. No. I mean, we definitely get some, some droughts, but overall we're, we're a lot more wet than the typical South Texas. So So it almost sounds like you've described in the North Texas anyway, from, from where you're used to hunting a an an almost midwestern like uh landscape with your ag and your hardwood timbers and your fingers and draws and whatnot yep yep it uh i was about to bring it up you kind of almost started to there like you know we have a lot more ranch here where you know you always hear in the midwest people talking about their farm yeah uh, it's it's a lot it's a lot less we still have a decent amount of ag but uh a lot more cattle ranches and it's obviously a lot flatter um and so, yeah, you, a lot of times you have some little groups of, of, you know, trees and then like your creeks, you know, usually your creeks are, uh, are covered in trees and that's where you see a lot of your deer movement. Um, and you know, there's in a, in a wide open cattle pasture, there's just not a whole lot to offer a white-tailed deer. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of people like to have a little bit of a mixture. They like their open ground for their cows, and the the people who hunt will tuck away some pockets of trees just to give their place a deer to to get away from the cows. Gotcha, gotcha. So, you said you were kind of in that Dallas Fort Worth area, and I'm just looking on a map here, mm-hmm. and the the Google map that I'm using, the, right. the color goes from the greenish type landscape in Eastern Texas. And then you start getting into like Abilene and Lubbock and, uh, uh, Midland, it starts to turn into more of a drier climate. Right. Right. Does the deer, does the deer hunting change as the landscape changes uh, throughout the state? It does a little bit. Um, you know, Texas is such a big state that it, it, it's going to have pockets of everything everywhere. Um, as far as style of hunting, it's it's fairly common across the state. Um, you know, rifle hunting is huge uh, in Texas. Just, we have so many deer, and it's so wide open. Uh, you know, our, our rifle season usually starts the first weekend in November, and they actually just made it statewide, and I believe the rifle season is going to go all the way through January now statewide. Whoa. So, you know, you have a three-month-long rifle season. Um, and so there's really no – there's no big reason to bow hunt for a lot of people because, you know, the rut is usually mid to late November or in South Texas, December, maybe even January. Um, so you get to rifle hunt the rut if you wish. Um, so most of the bow hunting in Texas is strictly just because people want to, you know, there's not really a, a need to. Um, and so as, as a whole, most of Texas, I would say is probably more into rifle hunting. Um, but you're definitely starting to get a lot of, of hardcore bow hunters as well. Right. Well, I mean, in just looking at the state, 
with the cattle operations and what you see, um, it, a lot of flat ground, not, to, you know, like when I think of Iowa, I think of a lot of tree stand hunting. Uh, right. When I think of Texas, I think of shooting house, um, yep. and not necessarily the habitat conducive mm-hmm. for tree stand hunting, which right. would, indi- you know, which would tell me right then and there, if you're able to see a long ways, a mm-hmm. gun would probably be a better weapon to, to use because you know, you're, you're trying to reach out longer distances. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I hunt out of mostly tree stands. I'm, I'm pretty much a, a hardcore bow hunter now. Um, but I've definitely spent some time in, in some box blinds or I could never afford them. So most of the time mine was, you know, some pieces of plywood nailed together. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, especially as you go West or, or South, really, that's where you see those, you know, 20 foot high box blinds or, you know, at least 10 foot high. And, uh, you know, and a lot of that too, you know, out there, it's so flat that, you know, if you get up 10 feet off the ground, you may be able to see two miles. And so, right. uh, right. yeah, so it's, it's definitely a little bit of a different ball game for sure. You know, here we have a lot more trees and so you still get some places where you can see a long distance, but. Uh, you know, I, especially for my bow hunting stuff, you know, I like to get into the timber and, and set some tree stands. So. Right. So now correct me if I'm wrong here and, and I don't, you know, like I've never hunted Texas and I've never <laughs> uh, hunted Oklahoma, but from what I hear, and this is more of, of a comment towards Texas is big private ranches is (laughs) is there any place for let's say a guy to go hunt maybe a a chunk of public ground in texas they are few and far between i'll admit that uh it exists it does exist um but it is pretty rare uh private land definitely rules this state um that being said, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of lakes, uh, mostly man-made lakes, uh, in Texas. And typically that's where a lot of your public land is, uh, because the Corps of Engineers will buy all that land in order to buy the lake or I'm sorry, to build the lake. Um, and then usually they'll keep a certain amount of land around that lake. Uh, and that's where a lot of the public land is, is areas like that. Now there are obviously some chunks of public land, not associated with the lake, but a lot of it is around, uh, your public lakes and stuff. Gotcha. So when you grew up hunting, it says here in your email that you necessarily didn't, uh, come from a quote unquote hunting family, but mm-hmm. you, you know, you were hunting. Mm-hmm. Were you hunting on growing up? Were you hunting on private farms? Were you hunting public ground permission? How'd that work? Uh, I was pretty much hunting all private ground. Uh, my family, I was, I was just kind of fortunate. Uh, I grew up in kind of an agriculture family. Um, uh, my dad had uh, a farm and a ranch uh, when I was a kid up until the time I was about 12. Um, and then after that, uh, my grandpa had a, a very large farm actually up on the Red River on the Oklahoma side. Um, and so I, I started hunting on our little place. And to be honest, I never have, and to this day, have not seen a deer on that property. <laughs> um, but I didn't care. Basically, what what would happen is, you know, I just wanted to go so bad, and I don't really know why. Uh, my dad would just wake up a little earlier than normal and drive me out there, and he'd sit me on a stump, and then he'd go feed the cows and check everything, and then come back and get me two or three hours later. And uh, I, yeah, I would just sit there freezing. You know, I didn't have any warm clothes. I was usually in like blue jeans and a, a ski coat or something. 
And I'd just sit there and freeze and not see a single thing. But for some reason, the next week, I'd want him to take me back. And so that went on till I was about uh, 15. And then when I was 15, I guess he kind of realized that I was not getting sick of it. And so for my birthday, he actually bought me my first tripod stand. Uh, and that year, uh, a guy from church actually volunteered. Uh, we kind of became friends, and he started taking me. And uh, I killed my first deer during the youth weekend when I was 15. Uh, I was using a, a rifle that my dad had gotten as a gift like 20 years before. Uh, the scope wasn't sighted in. I, it actually took me, I believe, five shots to hit the deer. Uh, you know, I, I just I didn't know. You know, I had no idea you had to sight in a rifle. Right. Uh, after I told some people the story, you know, I went and shot the gun with somebody who knew what they were doing, and I believe the rifle was two feet off, but it was high and right. Um, and so after, after I missed about three times, I kind of started doing a grid, and uh, and finally hit him and dropped him. Luckily. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's how out of it I was. I had no idea. Um, but then after that, like I said, I was 15 that year, the next year I turned 16. And once I got my driver's license, you know, it all, it all broke loose then. And, uh, that's when I started driving up to my grandpa's place to hunt there. And, uh, and that's when I, I really, I guess, flourished as a, as a deer hunter. And, uh, I just, ever since then I've, I've loved it. So. Right. So then, you know, you said you consider yourself kind of a hardcore bow hunter now. How old were you when you started, you know, started making that transition to away from the gun and put right. more energy uh, behind the bow? Uh, I actually, I bought my own, my, my first bow myself when I was 16. Um, and really like kind of what I was saying earlier, you know, there's really no need to bow hunt except for you get to start hunting a month earlier. Right. And so that's really the only reason I bought a bow. I got to start hunting the first weekend of October instead of November. Um, and you know, really not having any guidance into bow hunting. It took me, you know, I, I, it took me, I think five years before I killed my first deer with my bow. Um, and part of that was, you know, once rifle season came around, I'd, I'd stick out, you know, with the bow for a week or two, and then I'd get sick of not killing anything and I'd switch back to the rifle. Um, but, uh, it bow hunting for me was a hard curveball that it took me a long time to figure out. And, uh, you know, I, I would watch hunting shows on TV, but most of the stuff back then, it, you know, it was more for entertainment than education. And so, you know, I'd see these guys just sit in a tree next to a field and kill these big bucks. And so that's what I would do. And I, you know, I didn't watch the wind. I didn't, I didn't wash my clothes. I had no scent control, no nothing. Um, and so bow hunting, it took me a while to figure out. And I, I really just recently kind of feel like I have it somewhat figured out. I don't think you ever had it all the way figured out, but, um, so yeah, I've been bow hunting about, uh, about 10, 10 years or so, maybe 12. Yeah, and that's something that I definitely hear a trend is for for people who are new to bow hunting that don't necessarily have a mentor. Uh, you have this very hard learning curve that lasts multiple years mm -hmm. uh, in order for you to start becoming ses successful. Um, and depending on when this learning curve take takes place, it may take you longer. It may take you... Uh, shorter periods of time because you know I talked with uh, a guy a while ago on one of the last podcasts he just started bow hunting at like the age of oh 30 
and, mm-hmm. and now he's like 36 or something. And he's like, it took me three, you know, it took me an entire season, maybe even two to realize that my wind played such mm-hmm. a huge role. And, yeah. and as a kid, I can see, uh, that, that, uh, that taking a little bit longer to figure out just because you're a young, you know, you're a youngster. Right. I, I still remember the, the day it kind of clicked for me. I was about 18 and, uh, I was up at my grand and I had, you know, I had one stand. I didn't really realize that you needed more than one. I had one stand and, uh, I was sitting over a bait pile and it was in the morning and two does came out and they would come out into the field and they would look, I mean, straight at me and they'd kind of go back into the trees and they'd walk around and they'd come, you know, they wanted to get come out so bad, but they knew I was there. And so that, uh, after I climbed down, I drove to Walmart and I bought some baby wipes and, uh, uh, scent spray. And I came back and I, I gave myself, I, I, again, like I didn't have a place to, to sleep. So I was sleeping in my truck. Um, so I gave myself a baby wipe bath and sprayed my clothes down, you know, every layer from underwear out. And that evening I went back to that same, or I'm sorry, I didn't sit in the stand. I, I paid attention to the wind and I just sat on the ground on the other side of the field. And that night, those same two does came out and they walked within 15 yards of me and never knew I was there. And that's when it, you know, it just clicked all of a sudden. Right, right. And then from that point on, I take it your your strategy probably changed a little bit. You started focusing not at, not necessarily on the wind while in the tree, but what you're doing from the truck to the stand as well. Yep. Uh, you know, my I learned entry and exits. You know, that's almost more important than where the stand is. Uh, you know, even this year I had a spot here that I've been trying to figure out how to hunt for three years because I just knew that the deer were there. The bucks travel through there, always had pictures and I'd go in and hunt and wouldn't see anything. And, uh, I finally, uh, after listening to podcasts like yours, I started learning about bedding areas and stuff. And I realized that when I was walking in, I was probably walking within 20 yards of the, the bedding area. Um, and so all I did, I actually didn't even move the stand. All I did was I approached from the south now instead of the north and, and crossed this little creek. And uh, this year I filmed, I think, three different mature bucks out of that stand. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And it, it, it's it's pretty gratifying, not necessarily getting a kill or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or shooting a deer, but knowing that you made a simple adjustment to – your you know just how you access a hunting location maybe change your tree stand a little bit but then you then you see the deer and it and it makes you just kind of, for me anyway uh you know if i'm not seeing deer uh, out of a particular stand the next year i know it's good because the signs there so i'll mm-hmm. adjust my entry route you start seeing deer and the next thing you know you're you're recalculating every tree you've ever sat in in your mind and you're just like oh my god i gotta i gotta change i gotta change the game yeah yeah so so then you know 18 years old when did you i i, I guess when did you start becoming successful as far as sh- can like consistently shooting deer, uh, with, with your bow? Um, probably 19 or 20. Okay. Um, you know, like I said, that wind thing had a lot to do with it, obviously. Um, 
Yeah, probably about 20. Uh, so I, I actually went to school in Idaho, University of Idaho. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just, I was, you know, I'm an outdoorsy guy. I wanted to try something new. And so I went to the mountains. Um, and so really the only time I got to, to whitetail hunt was when I came home for Thanksgiving break and Christmas break. Um, and so, but it, in one way, it kind of gave me an advantage because I stayed out of all my hunting areas. You know, I was still hunting my grandpa's farm. And so I'd get everything set up during the summertime and then I'd leave for, you know, three months and come home and Thanksgiving normally kind of times out pretty well with the rut. Um, and so I, I was started getting fairly successful then. Um, and you know, obviously every year you're learning and I, I try to pay attention to all the small details. And, um, so I've had quite a bit of success from, you know, 19 years old on pretty much. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. So Texas, you know, when I, you know, when I think Texas, I think feeders, right? Right. Did, did baiting, obviously baiting is legal, but Mm -hmm. is baiting a... I mean, do you throw that into your regimen as far as strategy is concerned? I, I do, but probably not how most of your listeners would imagine. Um, you know, I definitely have a few a few stands that are set up 20 yards from a feeder. Um, but that is you're, – you're probably not going to kill a big buck that way, especially a mature buck. Um, you know, they're they're smarter than a lot of people give, you, give them credit for. And, uh, yeah. I think I read on a, a hunting forum one time, some guy was talking about how deer don't recognize feeders. They just think it's a magical tree throwing out corn. Um, but, uh, and I don't, I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, they, they know that something's up there and usually around a feeder there, you know, there's usually a lot of human scent from filling it, you know, checking, you know, most people have a camera on it when they have one. Um, and so, the the way I have been most successful, and I just figured this out a few years ago, is if you're using a feeder, you still have to use it like a normal food source, you know, like somebody would on a food plot. Um, and I, I kind of learned this day, this one day, I was I was sitting right off of a feeder, and I had a few does come to it. I had a young buck uh, come to it, and then uh, as the day moved on, uh, I ended up seeing seven bucks and not one of them came a hundred yards uh to that feeder uh, within a hundred yards i'm sorry i could see them to my left and i finally figured out they were they were on the downwind side and you know just like a deer would move downwind of a food source and check for does that's what they were they were just using that feeder instead of a food plot um and so a lot of my tree stands now are not actually set up on the feeder themselves they're set up, you know, in between there and the bedding area. Um, and I'm trying to, just like anybody else would, I'm trying to get them in that transition, um, going from bedding to the food source. Right. And my, my success rate has jumped up or, you know, even just seeing deer or well, I've seen mature bucks. Um, you know, you kind of have to give that sacrifice almost, you know, I see less deer that way. Um, but I started seeing more mature deer that way. Gotcha. So, you know, when a lot of people, especially us in the Midwest, where uh, states like Iowa and Illinois, I don't think you can, uh, Illinois, um, certain other Midwestern states, you can't you can't bait. And, right. you know, before I started this podcast and I have talked and, you know, I even did an entire podcast dedicated to baiting mm-hmm. where, you know, I talk with the guys who bait and they're like, 
well, yeah, sometimes you sit right over the bait pile and that's typically to hunt does. But if right. you're looking for a big mature buck, uh, you're hunting way off that on the downwind side. And especially in the rut where, um, I, I was talking to one guy and he was telling me that, you know, in the rut, when you think there would be more, uh, bucks checking a, a food source or something, he sees less because they're not stopping to eat. They're just right. cruising downwind of all these different feeders and, mm-hmm. you know, they're making, making a loop. And then that's just like you, he's like, as soon as I started, um, moving off the bait piles mm-hmm. uh, and the feeders, I, m- my sightings of bucks would go up and I, you know, so did my success rate. So that was kind of, that was cool for me to know it's not what I think it is, right. Where you just dump a, a shit ton of corn out and then sit over top of it. Right. And like, you know, kind of like you said, if, if your goal is just to kill a doe or a deer, you know, it, it works great for that. Um, and, and bucks do visit the feeders, but 99% of the time it's going to be at night, you right. know, one o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, they are also useful for, you know, a scouting tool or, or you know, making sure the buck is in the area. But yeah, the, the chances of that four or five year old buck strolling up to that feeder like it's nothing and starting to eat corn in front of you is, is pretty low. <laughs> This is a random question, and mm-hmm. it's turkey season. Do you guys have Do you guys have Rios down there, or uh, Easterns? We do. Yep. Uh, so, our place in Oklahoma is actually right on the line of Rios and Easterns. Uh, uh, you know, Adam and Matt from Landon Legacy came down about this time last year, and uh, they said that we actually here probably have a hybrid of the two. Right. Um. Uh. But yeah, it's mostly Rios. Most mostly Rios though. Okay. That's awesome. I definitely want to try to, uh, my, my goal is mm-hmm. to someday shoot, you know, a Merriam, a Rio mm-hmm. and Eastern, uh, mm-hmm. and then Osceola. And I don't know, I might, maybe I'd be interested in going down to Mexico for the other one, but, uh, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. I got off track there, but, but. <laughs> come on down. I'm, I'm not a huge turkey hunter, so you can have them. <laughs> do, you, do you have them on your properties? We do actually, uh, just on this one that has more timber. Um, so we, we kind of get the short end of the stick with turkeys because this southeastern part of Oklahoma where I am, we don't have near the population of northwestern. Uh, so they actually give us a shorter, later season. So it, it's it's a challenging hunt just because it starts later. Gotcha. Um, but we, yeah, we got plenty, um, which most of the people around here can't say that. But I, I just a lot of the habitat stuff I've done for the whitetail obviously uh, benefits the turkeys too. Right, absolutely. Um, so, so I'd, I'd say for this area, we have an above average population. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So same email you sent me, you, mm-hmm. you moved to Oklahoma mm-hmm. and it sounds like you, I mean, you've only been in Oklahoma, what'd you say a year now? Yeah, about a year and a half, a year time. and a half, but mm-hmm. you've been hunting in Oklahoma for quite a while now. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. It sounds to me that you're in Oklahoma almost a hundred percent of the time now? Just about. Yeah. Just about. Okay. So you've started to make that transition from Texas to Oklahoma. What's the difference there between Texas and Oklahoma? You know, they're really similar in a lot of ways. Uh, the big difference is Oklahoma has the opposite of Texas when it comes to rifle season. Uh, they actually just extended it a few years ago to 14 days before it was 10 days. Um, and so it, it opens the week, the Saturday before Thanksgiving and closes two Saturdays after basically. So it's two weeks long. 
Okay. Um, so much, and that's another part of the reason I'm such a big bow hunter now, uh, especially, so I'm, I'm actually still a Texas resident. Um, and so I actually have to pay out of state hunting license uh, or prices to, to hunt here. And, uh, they charge you separately for the different weapons. And so I have to pay out of state to hunt the bow. If I want to hunt with a rifle, I have to pay another out of state charge and same with the muzzle loader. Um, so that's another reason I'm, I'm more of a bow hunter now. Is Oklahoma a over-the-counter state for non-residents? They are. Oklahoma and Texas both. Okay. And so I, like, I, I don't need any points or worry nope. about zones. I just show up and buy my tag. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And uh, actually both. So I'm trying to think. Uh, I believe the, <laughs> this may be really odd for the, the Midwest people, but uh, with that out-of-state uh, license, it's, I believe that gets you six tags in Oklahoma and five in Texas. And are they all buck tags or any sex tags? Uh, so you get in Oklahoma, you get two buck tags and four doe tags. Um, only if you're if you're rifle hunting, you can only kill one buck with a rifle, I believe. Okay. Um, but you can kill one with a rifle and one with a bow, or two or two with a bow. Um, Texas, you get uh, two buck tags as well, I believe. Um, and uh, the only type of like restrictions, I guess, on that there are some counties are one buck counties and some bucks or some counties are two buck counties. Okay. And so in a two buck county, you can obviously kill two bucks in a one buck county. You can only kill one, but you are allowed to then go to another county and kill your second buck. So you can still kill two bucks. You just may have to do it in two different counties. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now, Oklahoma, same questions as kind of Texas. What's the public land situation out there? Um, I'd say it's a little bit better, um, but it's also probably a little bit more used. Gotcha. Um, and uh, <laughs> when I say used, I mean that in and out of season. Um, Oklahoma has a, a, a fairly large poaching problem, oh, if wow. I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, but there's still some actually uh, – a guy we we met here, his son killed a 211 inch deer on public land just about 45 minutes from here in 2016. So they're definitely still there, um, but uh, you got to put in some some work, I guess, to find them. So does the terrain change as well when you head north of the Red River? Then it does a little bit. It's it's kind of laid out like Texas, um, almost more so. Uh, Eastern Oklahoma, there's actually some small mountains you know, very small mountains. It's very rocky. Um, it's pine trees, that type of terrain. And then as you go West in the middle, that's kind of the great plains area, you know, rolling Hills with grass. And then Western Oklahoma is, is pretty sandy and kind of getting more into the sagebrush type stuff. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I've heard recently, and, uh, it's not, I guess I shouldn't say I heard it. I've read it where like Oklahoma is, is kind of that next sleeper state for big whitetails. I mean, there has been a large number of 200-inch bucks killed out of Oklahoma this year, and that's just not because they all of a sudden start growing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bigger antlers. There's something there in Oklahoma that allows them to get to uh, a higher age class and, mm-hmm. you know, have the, the nutrition to actually get them to grow those antlers. So what do you think it is about Oklahoma, in your opinion, that is allowing these, you know, 
that, that state to grow bigger, more mature bucks? I think, uh, honestly, it's just been education, you know, organizations like QDMA and, and, you know, podcasts such as this, uh, people kind of started to realize that if you, if you let them grow, let them age, that they're going to grow bigger antlers and, and everybody likes that. So I think the, I think the potential has always been there. Um, they just, people weren't willing to, to wait, you know, they weren't willing to pass the younger deer, you know, especially with that short rifle season. Uh, you know, if people, you know, if you only have 10 days to hunt, it's a whole lot harder to, to wait and pass deer. Um, and so I think just a combination of lengthening the, the rifle season a little bit, um, bow hunting becoming more popular and just kind of a, a nationwide sense of deer management. Um, uh, I think people are just starting to realize the potential of, of passing younger deer. Um, you see a lot more, you know, food plots popping up uh, across the state and, uh, you know, hunting, hunting has always been popular in Oklahoma. Uh, I think they've just kind of lacked in the management uh, a little bit. Gotcha. What, what part of the state, uh, you know, so Iowa is kind of a bad example, but the, the far Northeast, East and South are kind of the, the good parts. Like, yeah, I, I want to say Northwest, but I have uh, examples of everywhere in Iowa, but, right. but is there a part of Oklahoma that is superior as far as you know where where some of these these big bucks are coming out of um i'm kind of like you i kind of have examples of big bucks all over the place you know i i I could name a 200 inch deer or know of a 200 inch deer that came out of all four corners um if i if i really had to put it down i would say probably the middle the middle third uh, going north and south, um, kind of that's kind of where that line is going from the basically the Great Plains area. You know, going from the rough stuff to the sandy stuff out west. Um, that's just kind of that that sweet spot in the middle uh, where they get the right amount of rainfall, but still get enough sunny days and have the right soil. Uh, there's a lot more ag in the central part of the state. Um, so if I had to say, I'd, I'd say kind of the central part of the state. Gotcha, gotcha, and that's where the ag and mm-hmm. you know the, just the good soil and, and the conditions kind of all add up right okay and and since then you know since you have started dedicating more of your time into oklahoma has mm-hmm. your success rate gone up or has your success changed for, you know to more mature or bigger antler deer um yeah probably but that's also just you know, because of the lack of, honestly, because of my lack of places to hunt in Texas, um, whereas I, I now have quite a few places to hunt in Oklahoma. Gotcha. So that has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, uh, one of my buddies, uh, he'd, he'd kill me if I said where, but in North Texas, you know, he had in 20, 2016, I believe he had two different 200 inch deer uh, on camera. Wow. And, uh, but, you know, the hard part about North Texas is, that's kind of where the population is. And so instead of, you know, in South Texas, it's 50,000 acres, hundred thousand acres is fairly common. North Texas, you, you know, it's more like the Midwest. You got 30 acres here, maybe 200 acres there or something like that. So, you know, a guy up the Creek ended up, uh, killing one of those deer. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're everywhere, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now I want to talk a little bit about hogs. 
because <laughs> that's something that you know I've never really touched on. Um, right. I, I, some guys have had, uh, you know, like when someone says hogs to me, I don't really absorb that because mm-hmm. I, I don't have to struggle with them like some hunters in the South do. Um, but I know some guys who, if they could, they would kill every single hog that they could, they could get their hands on because they hate them so much. They ruin the deer hunting. And what's your experience with, with hunting whitetails in like hog infested areas? Uh, pretty negative. (laughs) Uh, I I would almost fall into that. They could all, uh, disappear. Um, you know, when I, when I was younger and, you know, didn't get to hunt as much, I loved them. You know, that was just another thing I got to kill. It was, you know, I wouldn't say easier, but they were more plentiful. Um, you know, did, did it all the time. Uh, now that I'm older and especially a landowner, uh, I, I despise them. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a hog hunter. I'm a hog eradicator. Um, right. and you know, this, they, if, if a white tail's out and a hog comes in, the white tail will leave the, you know, they just, they won't stand up to them. The hogs, there's really nothing that'll stand up to a hog. They know they kind of rule the roost. Um, you know, guys who run feeders, they pretty much have to fence them off because once the hogs move in and find that feeder, I mean, that's just their new, they'll get trained quicker than anything. You know, they know that that feeder goes off at four thirty in the afternoon and they're going to be there right when it uh, goes off and they're going to eat every kernel of corn they can find. Um, not only that, just the damage they do to the landscape. Um, talk to us about that in detail. Okay. Uh, you know, here we got a, a 200 acre, uh, hay pasture and, uh, you know, you're driving that tractor along cutting hay and all of a sudden your head hits the top of the tractor cab because big old hog rut, uh, you know, is out from the middle. And, you know, when you get a group of them out there, they all kind of interlock. And so, I mean, we've had huge chunks of land uh, just completely ruined and, you know, worthless. Uh, and so they're they're a real problem. And that's because uh, they're rooting. Right, right, right. They're eating roots, bugs uh, mice, you know, any, anything small. Okay. So, so they're damaging livestock. I mean, and then from a, you know, your income is now based off cattle, right? Right. Mm -hmm. From, for, from a cattle farmer standpoint, do hogs negatively impact that? They do, um, more from the land side, you know, a a hog's not going to attack a cow or anything. Um, but as I'm, you know, just tearing up the pasture, um, rubbing on fence posts, uh, again, you know, the hay, obviously that's how we feed our cattle in the winter. And so the more they tear up, the less hay we get. Um, and also just, you know, just kind of the headache part of it, you know, having to drive around the hog roots or tearing up equipment. If you run through it, um, they really, they really do some damage so much so that, you know, we, we now have a, a thermal scope so we can hunt them at night. Um, you know, I'm, I'm shooting an AR 308 with a thermal on it. So that, you know, it's, it's gone from one shot, one kill to just kill as many as you can, you know, and I know that a lot of people may disagree with that and, and call it unethical, but that's just, that's kind of what we've, the cards that we've been dealt, you know, that's what we got to deal with. And when they're hurting their, your livelihood, you got to take care of them. So if you blow one's leg off and it just goes into a hole and die, that's completely okay with you. (laughs) <laughs> as hard as it is to say yes and yeah. i'm not that way with everything you know i if i wound a deer you know it 
it keeps me up at night and I hate it. But uh, with as many hogs as I've killed and all the damage I've seen, uh, it, I don't shed a tear for them. Right. Absolutely. And I think a lot of other people uh, share that sentiment. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you handle uh, mm-hmm. this this hog population because from what I understand if you know a, a hog population goes unchecked for a while it can straight mm-hmm. up explode and right. next thing you know you're you're not talking about 10 you're talking mm-hmm. about a hundred right uh, we <laughs> I guess we're all, we're in the explosion part it's already happened um, you know I I am actively hunting them as often as I can and for every one I kill, one shows up. Um, so I'm, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, one of my uh, buddies from college is here right now. We, we went out last night and killed some and killed some the night before that. Uh, so it's, it's an ongoing thing. You, you can't let up on it for sure. Right. So how many do you think you're killing in a year? Um, probably well, you know, we just got the thermal about a year and a half ago, and that is obviously up to my stats a little bit, but probably 20 to 30 uh, personally. All right. Um, Does that do a dent in the population at all, or is that, you know, you kill that many just to maintain it? Um, Probably just to maintain it. Like, I, you know, we I couldn't say we tell a difference by me killing that much. Um, they may go away for a little while. You know, I've, I've there's been a few times where I've hunted them hard enough to where you don't see any for, you know, maybe two months. Um, but then it's just like nothing ever happened. You know, they just come back in in a wave. So. Right, right. Right. So it's a big problem. It is. It's a real big problem. Um, you know, I think I one, one sit, you know, I was deer hunting and a group of hogs came in and I shot one with my bow and they ran off. And 10 minutes later, a, a big old boar came in and I shot him with my bow. And then, an hour later, another big boar came in, and I guess there was enough blood on the ground at that point. He knew something was up, and I didn't get a shot at the third one. But, uh, um, yeah, they're they're real hard on, on – they just pester you, I guess is the right. best word to put it. You know. So you mentioned you had the guys from Land and Legacy out there to look at your uh, ranch and do some habitat work. Mm-hmm. How much focus – it's like okay if i if i said hey i need a land consultant to come up to iowa they don't even have to think or worry about how what to do from a habitat management standpoint for hogs right. <laughs> how big of a role do they play in i guess a habitat improvement plan for your property uh they were they were very insightful i, I was really impressed with them um you know the obviously the hog was you know they didn't have much experience with that but having me there, you know, when just talking through it, we were able to, to get it nailed down. And, you know, some of the things they suggested, you know, I had to say, you know, I'm not sure we can do that because of the hogs. Um, but they were still extremely, extremely helpful. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I would, I would recommend them to anybody for sure. So you probably, there are certain food plots you probably can't even plant because hogs will straight up destroy it. Right. I, uh, you know, I, I still try, uh, yeah. but nine times out of 10, they're going to end up getting destroyed. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've almost made the decision this year that I'm not going to plant any, um, and try to save up my money to where I can buy some, you know, basically hog wire type stuff to, to fence off some small food plots. Um, because they, 
you know, some of them make it, but most of them don't. Most of them end up getting torn up, uh, especially if you try to like, you know, throw some corn down for the deer in, in a plot. You know, they basically eat the corn and then just start rooting around after they're finished. So right. Right. it's pretty disheartening. Yeah. Yeah. Now, kind of going back, taking a step back here, what is your goal every season as far as you know, whitetail are concerned? Um, recently, it's been just to kill a mature buck. Um, Four-year-old? It, is that, I mean, is that quote-unquote mature in your area? It, it has been four year old until this year. This year I tried to bump it up to five. Um, and I was kind of, well, I, I had two goals this year, kill a five year old and also wanted to try to kill two. I'd, I'd never killed two bucks in the same year. Um, and so I, I accomplished the goal. I killed two bucks. One was a four year old. One was a five year old. So. Gotcha. And so the goal is just, is it just like the top tier or, I mean, have you gotten to a point now in your life? I just had a, a really cool discussion with my buddy, Justin Zarr from bowhunting.com mm-hmm. about, you know, hitting a certain level where you start to pass deer that you otherwise in the past would have shot like Pat, you know, starting to pass four-year-olds, like 150 class four-year-old is, it would be really hard for a lot of people to pass. Right. So they get to that five-year-old mark. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that you feel you can consistently do on the properties you hunt? Yes and no. I've kind of gone back and forth on that. Um, you know, I I have no problem. I've passed several, you know, 130 inch four-year-olds. Um, I can't say that I've ever passed a 150-inch four-year-old. Um, I've I've passed a 140-inch three-year-old, um, and uh, you know I, you know one of the bucks I killed this year actually, and it was the four-year-old. It was actually the smallest buck on my hit list. It was just barely over 130. Um, but part of the reason I went ahead and killed him was I, I didn't feel like he would get much better. And I had several older bucks that I knew could get better. Right. Um, and, you know, there, you could go on for years about that and genetics. And, um, but it was also just a situational thing. You know, I, um, I was trying to kill a buck on film this year. He came in, the camera was rolling. He was dead center in the, in the frame. Uh, you know, I, I had pictures of him. I knew what deer it was. And so I went ahead and took the shot and, you know, with my bow and everything. So, so I, I even though it was, a smaller deer and really it was the smallest deer I'd killed in a few years. Uh, I was still just as excited as could be. Gotcha. Well, that's awesome, man. Sounds mm-hmm. like, uh, you've got some good roots planted, some good, a good farm, uh, down there in Oklahoma. And, uh, you got any deer, uh, for this upcoming season that you, I don't know, maybe you're are looking to see if they've, uh, they show back up. I do. Uh, the, the main one is uh, a deer. I just got two pictures of them back on my brother's place, um, but I I just had one. You know, I, I wasn't really trying to hunt it this year. I was more trying to, to learn, um, but I got a few pictures of this buck. I'm, I'm calling him Mongo. And, uh, he was a uh, he was probably a he was real close to a 170 inch four year old, um, and he uh, he was basically just a giant mainframe 10 uh which is actually my dream but I've, I've actually never killed a typical 10 point and that's been my dream buck since i was a little kid 
Uh, I've killed eights, twelves, fourteen. I mean, I've killed everything else, but not a nice typical ten. Um, and so, just that with the fact that he's huge, and uh, also just I'm kind of looking forward to the challenge of trying to kill a buck back there on my brother's place where it's so challenging. So, right. it's a uh, you know when I day when I daydream about hunting this year, he's the one that I'm daydreaming about. Absolutely, man. Awesome. Well, let me be the first to wish you good luck, man. Uh, John, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, hop on the podcast, man. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Big thanks to John for coming on the podcast today, man. Really appreciate that. Big thanks to all of you who are consistently downloading and listening to this podcast, man. I really appreciate it. And the entire Sportsman's Nation, all the podcasts that are involved on the Sportsman's Nation. Don't forget to listen to the big game Western RSS feed on the Sportsman's Nation as well. So wherever you guys are downloading your podcasts, if you search Sportsman's Nation, you're going to see two options. You're going to see the whitetail feed and you're going to see the big game Western hunting feed as well. So be sure you guys are subscribing to both of those. Huge shout out to all of you for downloading. I really appreciate that uh, because the Sportsman's Nation is continuing to grow. uh, And uh, thanks to everybody who is involved in that. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Wasp, Exodus, Ripcord, Ozonics, and Lone Wolf, and network sponsor Interstate Batteries. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Go to iTunes, leave a review, or wherever you download your podcasts, leave a review. Make sure you guys are following us on social media. I say this all the time. It gets a little redundant, like a broken record. But, man, we do a lot of cool things on social media. So if you're not following, you're missing. Uh, Instagram and Facebook for Nine Finger Chronicles and for the Sportsman's Nation as well. I think that's it, guys. Uh, Not too much else to say. Hopefully, everybody's going to be able to get out chase some turkeys find some mushrooms this spring when when all the snow melts and the temperatures warm up that is have a good rest of your week and remember if you're gonna be in a tree for the love of god people wear your damn safety harness have a good week